We are jumping back into the book of Romans. This morning we started working through chapter 3. Last week we didn't make a whole lot of headway. Uh, But we're going to be starting with verse 5 and working through verse 18. That is my plan at least, whether we do that or not. I can't say at this point. You know that I tend to have a tendency to get off track, (laughs) which we very often, many of us do. So what do you think about Romans? You like it? You like it as good as you did that revelation? Are you learning things? Are you growing? Is is God stretching you and and, and, in areas and places maybe you were not anticipating as we're going through here? Uh, I hope so, because that's exactly what's going on with me. Every time I read through Romans, it just... It captures my heart more and more, and and let me just say this, the more you read it, the more you understand it. If you're sitting here this morning saying, I really can't hardly follow what's going on here, it's possibly because you're just not as familiar with the material as you really ought to be. Uh, It's a most difficult book. It may be one of the most difficult books in the whole of the Bible other than Revelation. Uh, But it is full of wonderful and beautiful and great and magnificent insight insight into things that are very important to God and therefore must be important to us. As we said last week, we've said this a few times, that the book really is, it's, uh, it's a book of teaching. And, G- and he's teaching some very, very difficult things. And I don't know if you grasp this or not, but it's difficult for us to teach some of the things that we're teaching now because ultimately we know this, that God is the answer and it's, it's God's things. And we're, we're just feeble people trying to figure out uh, God's things, and like uh, J.I. Packer once said, is that all these aspects of theology, they all end in mystery because we just don't have the mind of God. We can't grapple fully and completely with the things of God simply because we don't have the mind. We don't have the mental capacity to be where he is. But we can always grow in our understanding of things, and we need to be doing that. We talked a lot about this this in Sunday school this morning. We cannot be stagnant. We can't get to some point and say, well, I think I know about everything I need to know. I think I know everything I ought to know or want to know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have to be moving forward always because as a Christian, you don't stagnate. It's impossible for a Christian to stagnate and stay there very long because what happens is if you stagnate, you start digressing. You start going in the opposite direction. So you're going to find in Scripture over and over again an admonition that we see reflected in the apostles many, many times, and that is to move forward. Don't be satisfied where you're at. Move ahead. Grow in Christ. Grow in your understanding of the scriptures, grow in your understanding of the gospel, and it will benefit you. And let's be serious. We all have the time to do that. We really do. Just think about the time this week that we have wasted doing pretty much little or nothing that we could have used to our own advantage, and as, as, as we're advantaged by things, then those things will eventually become advantages to other people as we share with them.
One of the things that we're going to see also through the book of Romans is Paul making a distinction between different groups of people. And the primary ones you're going to find is between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the things that we've learned so far is this, is that the big advantage that God gave to Israel was that he gave them his oracles. He gave him his, them his word. And sadly, they didn't use it to, to their advantage in many, many ways. Uh, and, and, and ultimately to the point that, you know, they knew that there was a Messiah coming and, and they knew the Messiah was supposed to be like this, that, or the other. And they had, they had begun to picture in their mind this great and glorious king coming on his white steed that was going to come and he was going to do things. And one of the primary things they were hoping he was going to do was to be to rescue them from the Roman oppression, to free them from that. But when Jesus came, they didn't even see him, even though he was right there in front of him. And when he spoke, they didn't hear what he had to say. As a matter of fact, when they heard what he had to say and they saw what he did, their hearts were hardened against him. And we said also this, that as we studied for the last few weeks, that this is one area where the church is set apart. One of the distinctions about the church compared to everyone else, and that is this, is we have all of the oracles of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And we understand that because of the great gift that God gave to Israel, they had no real excuses. They couldn't say we didn't know. We are those people today. God has given us his oracles. And not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament. We have all the oracles God completed. There will never be added to. Not one word would ever be added to the word of God. We've got all of it. It's ended. And as we were, I was preaching last week, it really dawned on me that, that, that there's a sense, and I don't know if you thought any more about this after I said it last week, there's a sense in, in which we have more to account for than any, most other people do. Certainly more than the, the African you know, native living that's never heard the gospel in his whole lifetime, and he never does in his whole lifetime. Do, do you think God's going to hold him to the same account that he will you and I? Because we've had this advantage of having the word of God available to us our whole lifetime. Now, I don't want anyone to be here in fear of suffering the wrath of God because we've been lazy. My whole point is this. Is that we very often look upon other people as being the greatest of sinners. And there's a sense in which because we have not used the advantages that we have to the utmost that we possibly could. Or very easily could. That doesn't leave us in a position of less accountability. It leaves us in a position of greater accountability. Okay. Starting with verse 5. If our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if 
through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Convicting words. You'll notice here that we've, we've also mentioned this, that in Romans, that Paul anticipates questions. He knows, he knows that he's teaching stuff, and he knows that this stuff is hard to comprehend. And it's, some of it's hard to receive, because it's not what we expect. It's not necessarily what we think we ought to get. He anticipates questions by his readers constantly. And again, like we said last week, these are questions that Paul himself has grappled with. And again, we said that very often when he asks these questions, that his answer basically is, may it never be. For some of them, he explains why conclusions people come to, why they can't be. But, but, but again, and again, what he's saying here is, God, forget, God forbid, God forbid that that be the conclusion that we come to. God forbid that that by your understanding. Or God forbid that we think that's the answer to our question. We said this last week that very often we think the most important thing is what our opinion is. What we think. Or how we think something ought to be. But God speaks forth truth. Not one lie has God ever said. God will have to stop being God to lie one single time. Now, like I said before, there's some things in Romans that are hard to swallow. And we're getting into some of these hard to swallow things. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Well, one of the things we need to consider is this. is that, that our, our sin is so contrary to the glory of God that when you see one and you see the other, it magnifies one and it shows how little and how low the other one actually is. You 
In other words, Paul is saying is that one of the ways that God has made himself known is through the unrighteousness of people. Because people see it. And they know that it is not good. They know that it is unrighteous and they know that it is not of God. Now, we're going to be grappling with some very heavy theological issues as we go through this book of Romans. And I just want to say this point blank from the very beginning is that God saves people, people don't save people. Anyone that's ever been saved has been saved by God himself. It's because it's God's will that they be saved. Not because they determined of themselves that they would be saved. I want to be kind of laying down some theological groundwork this morning. Uh, We know this. Could God have made us perfect? I mean, could could God have made Joan and Randy and, and Lloyd and Lucy in a manner that they were totally incapable of sinning? Could he have done that? Yes, he could have. But the question is not whether he whether he can do it. The question is, did he do that? And the answer is no. At the very least, we have to realize that God has allowed sin to come into this picture. He could have stopped it. He could have prevented it. But for his reasons and his purposes, he did not do that. He has let it happen. And there's a sense in which letting it happen, by which his glory shines forth even more brightly. Because when you come to know the Lord you see such a vivid contrast between who he is and how he is and how I am and what I do and what I think. In other words, if sin had never entered the picture, there's a ways in which you and I see God and know God now that we wouldn't. As far as the source of evil, we know this. Could God have created evil? The answer to that one is no. He did not create evil. There's another question that goes closely to that, and that is, did he allow it to happen? And the fact of the matter is, he did. He allowed evil to exist in this world, and he's allowed evil to exist in us. And we may never have the answer to our questions. It comes down to this. Do we trust in our own mentality? Do we trust in our own thought presses? Do we trust in our own dark and blackened heart? Or do we trust in Almighty God? One of the arguments that you're going to get from a lot of people is this, is if you believe what Reformed people believe, then you have to believe also that God is the author of evil. And what I would say to you this morning is that is a straw man. 
that one does not necessarily mean the other one at all. There are people and unbelievers, and, and I would have said this to you not so many years ago, and that is I see God as being evil. Why? Because he allowed evil to be in the world. Even if he allowed it, in the sense he, that was a part of it existing. But there's, there's some things that we know and we have to know that we have to base our understanding of everything else on. And one of those things is this, and there is, there, there is absolutely no evilness or wickedness about God at all. None. Not a scrap of it. Not a hint of it. Period. He has never done an evil, evil thing. He never will do an evil thing. You can take that to the bank. You can live for all the eternity and you will never experience, you'll never see God do one blasted bad thing. Never. It's against his character to do that. It's contrary to his character to do that. He's, it's impossible for him to do that. But he knows, Paul knows this, that, that some of the people that he's preaching to, that he's writing to at this point, they're going to misunderstand things. And they're going to think that somehow God's the one who is guilty in all of this. That it's God's fault that we are the way that we are. Because he could have made us absolutely pure in every way. That's what he's getting at here in verse 5. The God who inflicts wrath, the wrath that's going to be poured out for sin, is, it, is not unrighteous? Is, 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 is he? Notice Paul doesn't always give the answer to the question. He implies an answer. And what's the only answer you can come to? Well, that's what is in verse 6. May it never be. God forbid that that would be so, that, that God's guilty of doing any wrongdoing in this at all. Adam and Eve, when they were created, God created them with the ability to not sin. Ever. How do we know that? Well, no, we know that, that there was at least a little time that went by when Adam and Eve didn't sin. They didn't sin immediately at the point that they were created at. There was a time that they spent with God first, and then sin entered in the picture. So we know this. We know that they had the ability to choose not to do it. But we also know something else, and that is that they also had the ability to do it. How do we know that? Because they did. Once mankind fell into sin, things changed. Men were no longer just able to, they were <clears throat> able to sin. They were also unable to not sin. Okay? That was the fall. That was the consequences of the fall of 
you know, the choice that Adam and Eve made that was passed on to us. That's the condition that we're born into. That we're able to sin and we're unable to not sin. You've heard people say this, that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, because we have the heart of a sinner. That's the condition that we're born into. Now, you may think that's not fair. I tell you what you can do, you can take it up with God. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our disposition of sin changes. It's not that we become sinless. We have the ability to take more of a, 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 a choice in what we do and what we don't do. We are able, once again, to not sin in Christ. You can take some examples of, of uh, you've seen this happen in more recent months and weeks. And the thing that I, I keep going back to this because it's such a hot topic. But, but these, these two guys at, at General Assembly who stood up and confessed that they had this unnatural attraction to men. But at the same time, they're not practicing homosexuals. And they've never been there. They're not going to go there. They just have this, this desire that's in them because of the sinful nature to follow after that particular sin. But they're resisting against it. How are they able to resist it? Because God has enabled them to resist it. If they were unbelievers, they would have fallen. Do you see the difference? He does put us in a position where we have greater ability to, to stand against the, sin of, the onslaught of sin. Now, there are times when every one of us is going to choose to do it. And, and, Lord, and very often, you know it when you're doing it. I, mean, I don't think it happens this often that you do something, and, and 10 minutes later, you get, oh, that was sin. I think most of the time, you and I realize that when we're doing it, we're doing it. We're going to do it anyway. How many times have you ever had a thought like that go through your head? I know what I'm doing is not honoring to God. I know it's not glorifying to anybody, etc., 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 but... I'm going to do it anyway. See, our choosing has a lot to do with what you and I do and what we don't do. May it never be that we would think that. May it never be that we would practice that. God forbid. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? 
What he's talking about there is that sometimes in our sin, the glory of God is what shows through. But if that's true, then why do I still get judged for it? You're going to see some questions that Paul is addressing in this epistle that really just amaze you as you go through here. And you're thinking, how can anybody that's a Christian or even has any understanding and teaching of Jesus and of the apostles ever come that conclusion at all? Let us do evil that good may come. Can you imagine someone having that mentality that, you know, if, if good comes on the other end of a lot of evil, evil then let's just do the good, do the evil so the evil will come. Can you imagine a Christian having that mentality? says they're here that if their condemnation is just that anyone would have that mental state that understanding that belief what then are we better than they how many times have you looked at another person or you heard something someone else was saying you watched what another person was doing you're thinking i would never do that i would never say that i could never go there There's a sense in which we all want to feel better than they are. We can always look around and find someone doing things that we just don't believe for a minute that we would ever think about doing. But you know what thought really ought to be going through our mind when we see things like that? The exact opposite. And that opposite is thus, but by the grace of God do I. But by God's grace, if it were not for God's grace, I would be doing the same thing. If it were not for God's grace, I'd be doing far worse. If there's anything that keeps me from it, it is God's grace. Not my goodness, not my greatness. In the verses that follow, 10 through 18, what Paul is doing here is he's proof-texting what he just taught. He's saying to his audience, he's saying to these people he's writing to in Rome, he's saying to you and I today this, that this is not what I think, this is not what I've determined, this is not what I've decided, this is what God has said about this subject, and that's the end of the story. God has answered the questions through his word. And what did the scripture say? There is none righteous. How many? No, not one. Not a single one. There has never, ever been a righteous person born on the face of planet earth except for Jesus Christ.
Let me ask you something. Do you think you understand all the things of God? <laughs> There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. What does none mean? It means none. It means nada. It means not one single one. Nobody. Not one person. What Paul is arguing here is this. If it were not for the Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he sends, he sends to bring us to himself, no one in this room would have ever chosen to follow Jesus. No one. No one on the face of the planet ever would have. Jesus would have come and lived and died, the horrible death that he did, and all of that for absolutely no reason. It would have been a waste of his time. A wasted effort. If indeed God did not. With willful intent. Determine who he would save. We were starting to get into election and predestination stuff, which is something a lot of people don't want to talk about. When we hear the gospel, it ought to humble a mess out of all of us. Because we really do. I mean, we can blow our ego up, and we, I think, highly of ourselves in a lot of ways. But at the same time, we know ourselves like nobody else does. I have secrets from Lori, but I have secrets from myself. Myself sees myself as myself is. But all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All. As in all, every one, every single one, all people. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Quotations from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There are some people who must believe this, that God looked down on the earth and he saw some people there that were worth sending his son to save. But what the scriptures declare over and over and over and over again is that we are all rotten to the core and that is all of us. Every one of us. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So how many people have done good? None. And the reason for that is this. Is you and I think, are there some things that we could do that are good, that God would look upon and say, well, that's good? 
You know, we helped feed a, a family that was starving or provided a place for them to live. And things like, there's things that we do that are, are good. But, but see, with God, it's not, just, it's not just the act of doing something. It's the intention and everything that goes behind it. In other words, the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And what you would find is that is, is that there is at least, and every, every time you do something like that, you're thinking this. You may not be consciously thinking about it, but it's part of the picture, and that is God's really going to love me for doing this. Or, or just look how good I am. Look at how good of what I'm doing and what so-and-so is doing is bad. That means I'm better than they are. These are the kind of thoughts that go through our mind, and we may be conscious of them or not, but they're there. When God looks at what we think is good, he sees all the imperfection that is in it also, which makes it not good. Does that mean that we're not supposed to strive to do the good? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But I'm just saying here that we, you have never in your whole lifetime done one single act for anybody that was pure. That was absolutely pure. That there was always, to some degree, self-centeredness and selfishness in what you did. Pride. It's always part of the picture. May not be that big of a part, but it's always there to some degree. Verse 18, he ends with this There is no fear of God. Psalm 36, verse 1. Before their eyes. Let me ask you something. Do you have a healthy fear of God? Let me tell you, if we had the kind of fear of God that maybe we ought to have, we would never sin. I use this example all the time, so forgive me. I know you've heard this before, but, you know, we've, we've got, it's, it's amazing. We've got four kids. They grew up in the same household, same mom, same dad, pretty much the same circumstances. And they're like night and day difference. There's a huge difference between their personalities. I mean, Matthew's very reserved and quiet and, Etc. For the most part, Matt, Stephen, on the other hand, he's one of those people who he, he's never known a friend. He's like, he'll walk up to anybody and talk to him. They grew up in the same house, under the same rules, and they turned out different. Lindsay and Caroline, a lot different than the other. And the point I'm trying to make is this, is being a Christian for each one of us does not necessarily look exactly like 
what being a Christian would be for somebody else. Because each one of us struggles individually in, in a greater degree with particular things than other people do. So there is no blanket remedy for this. I mean, without Jesus in this picture that we're seeing here, there is no hope at all. None. No hope. That situation is absolutely hopeless. I went to a funeral last week. And sometimes when I go to funerals and I hear people talking, I cringe. Because I've heard some very great heresies that were <laughs> freely spoken in funeral services. And that's not because I think I'm better than anybody here. I'm just talking about some of the stuff I hear people saying in funerals just doesn't hold up in the balance of Scripture. You see what Paul is doing here and all these verses he's, he's quoting? That's what he's doing. He's, he's weighing what he says in the balance of Scripture and he's showing the people that this is why I'm right. This is what the Bible says. It's not me. God is saying this. And he's already said it. Notice all these scriptures that he's quoting are Old Testament scriptures that the Jewish people knew. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When was the last time you heard a hellfire and brimstone sermon? <laughs> see very often people try to use fear to push people into the kingdom of God and that may have worked on you and I have, I've heard people in their, in their testimony say that I heard, a, I heard a sermon it just scared me so much that it, it began me moving in the right direction And I do want you to know something that is a believer. If you truly are a believer, you have, you have no reason to fear God. And we have, have different things that in, encourage us to be fearful sometimes. And I think one of the things that people are most fearful of when it comes to their relationship to God is that he's going to leave them. I mean, we live in a culture today where parents are living, leaving their children all the time. One of the reasons Covenant Children's Home is down there for that very reason. Parents are giving up their kids. But when you are a child of God, you have no fear. You have no reason to fear that you will ever be abandoned, that you will ever be pushed out, that you will ever become homeless. He is your surety. He is your guarantee. 
trust in him. Not in your own understanding of things. Be like the Bereans were. When Paul came to Berea, he was preaching and teaching probably the same stuff that we're looking at right here. What did the people do? They took their Bible and they measured the words of Paul in the balance of Scripture. And only when they found that what he said was true did they ascribe to it and believe it. Let me just tell you, any teaching that you hear but I don't care who it is. What they say must be able to be weighed in the balance of Scripture and come out as true. There's all kinds of things that church people believe today that I'm telling you this morning do not hold up to the weight of Scripture. Very often the message today is more relating to people's feelings and this, that, and the other rather than God's truth. That God's truth is the most important truth there is. It doesn't change. It is as it always has been. Perfect in every way. He's never made one mistake. Not one. Rejoice, my friends, that you're a child of God. That is the only haven of safety and security in this world. He's a father that loves you immeasurably, beyond your wildest imagination, beyond your ability to even begin to comprehend even an inkling of it. That is the love that has laid hold of you. That is the love that will hold you. That is the love that will carry you through. Even your darkest of days and your your deepest trials. And it's the only truth that will. Love him. Love him back. Love him with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Love him with your mind. Love his truth revealed to you. Love his people that surround you. Because he first loved you. A bunch.